Hello and good afternoon. No, this is not Matt Townsend. That joke never gets old. This is Brooke Walker, voice up a little higher, a couple of octaves above what you're used to hearing at this time period here on BYU Radio. But Matt, of course, has the week off. It's my honor and privilege to sit in for him today. And gosh, do we have an interesting topic for you lined up. Our producers have been hard at work researching the topic of fear. We'll get to that in just a couple of minutes. First, a quick introduction. I've got James with me, right? Yeah. There he is. Just, engineer for the show. Just making sure you're here, ready to carry the ho- the fill-in host, right, when she slips and falls. Uh, well, you know, it, it's good to check that because sometimes I do fall asleep and terrible things happen. Oh, no, I meant you're checking me, so no sleeping today. Oh, dang it. Mike and Jessica are here. Merritt's here as well. You guys, any questions for me? Any introductory questions you would like to ask of me before we launch into this two-hour program? You know, I think your whole... Your whole um career is actually a good setup for this show. Is it? Yeah, because if you don't know, Brooke is on TV and I'm not the only one out there, but to think that you would be broadcast in front of a million people. Oh boy, is it a million? Scary. We try not to think of the numbers. <laughs> Maybe it's not a million. Have I you don't thought know. about how many are listening to you right now? I don't know. I don't know. I don't my, think about it. Don't Matt think about always it. just says his grandma, so I just think of his grandma. See, and the thing I is, I don't know it. if he's told you, but he <laughs> pays his grandma to listen. Oh, see? So it goes beyond just the grandma comments. <laughs> That's even less scary. I mean, we're talking, she doesn't feel obligated. Yeah, talking about fear. No worries. You're just broadcasting to <laughs> oh, a few good. thousand people right now. Mike, well, any questions? First time you've met me. Hello. Yeah, well, nice to meet you. Thank and you. I was just thinking, you know, in a, in a survey that's done often on fear, uh, public speaking is usually ahead of death by like seven or six <laughs> spots, and so that's a great you know. that's a great point. Why is that? Uh, Why is public public speaking such a scary thing for so many people? It's really interesting because that's not something that causes you physical harm. No you know, fear of heights, fear of drowning, right. sharks, that kind of thing. But usually, it's number two. I know, and I can't remember what number one is, but it's usually right up there. It's either one or two. Being afraid of, of speaking in front of crowds or in front of large groups of people. People are are afraid of that. They, they, are. they get faint. They And I'm one of those weird people, one of those sick people who actually have come to appreciate that adrenaline. I actually <laughs> like it. I and it's not something that I think comes Jessica mentioned I do host a daily lifestyle show for the NBC affiliate in Utah. It's called Studio Five. It's not the T V thing that translates necessarily to public speaking because in a TV studio, you're just staring at a camera. It's a camera. Okay. And a cameraman, I was so wondering. it's totally different. It yeah. did take me a couple of years to manage the energy of a live audience, but gosh, it's a fun way to get instant feedback, right? But I think it comes down to what you said, uh, not being afraid of who's out there and realizing that you're in control. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you mess up, I mean, they're all looking at you. You're in control. You're in charge. So just go with the mess up and pretend it was meant to be, right? All right. Well, that's a perfect launch into our topic today, which, as we said, is fear. If public speaking doesn't scare you, what does? Any fears in this room? We'll start with a confessional. Any fears? Any deep-rooted fears? Arachnophobia. I think that's really? a pretty common fear, though. Yeah. I spiders, hate right? spiders, yeah. Okay. Always hate hated spiders. spiders. Yeah. So if there's a, a spider in your home or your apartment, who do you call upon to help you? No Ghostbusters. So I'll, who do you call? I'll kill him. <laughs> you call I'll Jessica. Your she house. comes over. The tissue in hand attacks the, the corner of the bathroom killer. floor. Well, that's the thing is I, I cannot handle the whole like going at it with a tissue and stuff. It has yeah. to be a shoe, something that doesn't oh. get my hand oh. even close to it and stuff. You're looking for something 20 times bigger than the actual spider itself. Exactly. I and see. So if it runs, you know, I have I've plenty of um, coverage to, to handle that and kill it no matter what. Gotcha. Yeah. You missed the intensity of his eyes as he said that. Kill it no matter what. Jessica, what's your fear? Wait, hold on. And there's nothing worse than seeing it crawl away. No, there's nothing <laughs> even worse there. than looking away and looking back back and it being gone. It's true. It's like, where like, is it's the not spider? In my yeah. Or and looking in the tissue bed. and seeing it move. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's not that. After not said, dead. killing has taken exactly. place. Okay, you're fair, my dear. Okay, mine. I do not like mice. Mice. That's another one that's, they're not going to hurt me, but it's just the fear of, I don't know, you don't know where they are. Mm-hmm. They can move fast. They mm-hmm. are fast movers. So are, are rats scarier than mice, or do, are you uh, scared of rats? I don't see a lot of rats, but I imagine they would be worse. Because <laughs> they're just like mice- on like steroids. some yeah okay. steroids like on crazy mutilated yeah. what you're telling me gets me scared so Mike your fear your fear confessional I, I don't really have a fear oh, come you know on. I'm the guy who goes and I I oh, save the spider I'm the man. one oh. in in the house or the apartment that goes and I I save the spider and take it outside yeah. you know there's always one all right Mr Fearless <laughs> Mr Fearless you've been doing some research though on the idea of fear and that it's actually ingrained into who we are it's kind of embedded in us yeah. from a young age yeah you know fear is something we we kind of we talk about it negatively but it's really a good thing it it keeps us from from dying a lot of the times the things that we're afraid of are usually things that that are going to kill us but phobias are things that aren't necessarily going to harm us but we're afraid of it for, because of some kind of experience in the past or something you know and those those sometimes can be inherited but fear uh you know when we look back uh we're humans almost all humans are afraid of heights you know mm-hmm. usually when you fall from more than 60 feet you're going to break a leg and probably die uh, so that's a good thing fear is good it, in some regards. It's also negative when it's not in check. Well, talk to me a little bit about the studies that you've researched that really go to prove that young children are almost trained, speaking to those phobias you talked about, trained to be fearful of certain things. Yeah, well, when you look at monkeys, for example, this is really interesting. Uh, chimpanzees are deathly afraid of snakes. All scientists have to do is show a picture of a snake and they go b- bananas. Literally, they're throwing <laughs> bananas at the scientists. Good pun. Good and, pun. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Monkeys, bananas, you just work. They that don't right in live there. in an environment where there are snakes. Mm. So that's a learned behavior, or they used to be in environments where there were snakes. Now, there's a famous study that was done in the 1920s that's uh, called the Little Albert Experiment. Now, had you heard about yeah. this study before you dove into this research? Oh, yeah. I'm okay. a big psychology nerd. You here, get into so. that. Well, I'm the non psychology nerd of the group. So fill me in. How did this play out? So there had been a study earlier by a Russian scientist, if you heard about Pavlog's dogs mm-hmm. when he uh they rang the bell the dogs would salivate because they knew food was coming they had been conditioned to that and they wanted to see if this was the same for humans and so they took a little baby and this is before there were ethic codes and things like that they would never do a study like this nowadays but they had a little baby and they would uh show baby the baby different stimuluses like a rat or uh a um a monkey or masks or a burning newspaper and and then they observed the boy's reactions. And initially, the, the, the little baby was not afraid of anything. It was happy and smiling and trying to touch all these different things. Oblivious because it, yeah. it doesn't know better. And then uh, the next time when little Albert was exposed to the rat and the bunny and, and these fluffy things, they took a large metal pipe above, a, a few, about a foot or so above his head and then banged it with a hammer so it made a large, loud oh, noise. And, baby. of course, he started to cry. Yeah. And then the next time uh, the stimulus was introduced and they didn't bang the metal pipe, all he would have to do is either touch it or see the rat or the bunny, you know, and he would start to cry. And so he'd been conditioned to be afraid of things that were furry or fluffy. And uh, they, they repeated this several times. And it got to the point where all they had to do was show him a picture 
of a bunny rabbit and he would start crying. It's that conditioning. It's that programming right. over time. The mind and the psyche comes to recognize that particular object, no matter how harmless. I mean, a light and fluffy white bunny isn't going to harm anyone. In fact, most people are attracted and gravitate towards something like that. This child conditioned and trained to see that as a fearful thing. Right. And, really interesting. And so this uh, gave way to the idea that, that fears can be learned they can be experienced and they can be learned from others and they can be learned from – and that's why we get these ridiculous phobias like being afraid of answering telephones or being afraid of, of uh, the color green and things like that. So if James had been exposed to spiders from a young age and we would have said instead of, oh my gosh, there's a spider, we would have said, look at that cute little spider. Oh it's my so gosh, fuzzy. So, look, touch it. <laughs> touch it, James. You would have been possibly conditioned to not be as afraid of spiders as you are, right? Yeah. It's a crazy thought, but it's a great jumping off point for the rest of this hour. The rest of this show really as we dive into fear. And if you consider that study that Mike just mentioned and cited, think about how that applies to your own life. What have you been conditioned or trained to be afraid of? And bigger question. How is that limiting you in your life? We're going to break through that and talk through the possibilities. We're closing in on the quarter hour. Can we come back and talk about the upside of fear? We've done some research on that too. Fear, not just a negative thing. So again, diving into this completely in depth over the next hour, hopefully helping you conquer some fears and live your best life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Brooke Walker. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. I am Brooke Walker sitting in for Matt today and do not be afraid. We are talking about fear today. Our producing staff diving deep into this ominous topic to really break down what fear is, where it comes from, and how you can conquer it to move forward. A lot of people, I think, stuck not really realizing why their goals or their ambitions aren't coming true. A lot of times fear is at the root of that, according to some of the research that we've dug up. In fact, Jessica Black joining us right now, you did some research on a different angle of this topic, the upside of fear. Is there an upside of fear? Well, Obviously, there's some crazy people out there. Have you seen the... We were just talking about the um, video that just came out from an Australian. Um, these two brothers who are trying to promote their clothesline for the for the commercial, they had one of the brothers jump into the ocean with a shark with just a birdcage. And they got it on video and he was smiling and then the shark came over and he is not smiling anymore. <laughs> and he jumped out, but then he's laughing again and you're like... Oh, you almost lost your life. Why are you smiling right now? You start to think, does this guy have, he might have t-shirts that he's trying to sell, but does he have a brain? That's the real question. Does he have a brain? Right. And we see that all the time. We're like, why are those people doing all this crazy things? So, um, which leads us to, some people like fear. Some people like that adrenaline rush. I think Mike was just telling us that that he likes it. I don't get that. (laughs) I I am a big thrill seeker. I've been skydiving several times. I love to to do things like that and bungee jumping. I don't know. I just get such a rush from it. Right, which it's is what they fun. said. Yeah. yeah. So I was reading about um, this. these uh, sociologists and people who know what they're talking about. You know, about. just these smart people. <laughs> yeah, I was, talk- I was uh, reading about the smart people's comments, um, and they said that it was the natural high that it gives you. Um, people like that fight or flight response, mm-hmm. the dopamine, of course. Mm-hmm. That's what we always go back to is the dopamine releases. Um, you can blame almost anything in this world on dopamine, right? <laughs> for a, good or for I, evil. I, that's what I'm finding out. <laughs> well, and here's what's interesting. You tapped into a word that's super interesting, I think, as it ties in and relates to the, the topic of fear is adrenaline. So Mike, right. from an 
an adrenaline junkie's perspective, do you find fear feels any different than adrenaline? Are those two separate emotions? Do they kind of combine and become the same sensation for you? You know what? There's uh, They talk about this fight or flight response, you know, mm-hmm. and I think it may have something to do with that because I I don't run away, you know, I just kind of charge in there. And so that feeling I, when you first jump out of the airplane, uh, it's kind of euphoria almost. And then you get to the ground and almost every time I've gotten to the ground, I'm super sick afterwards because it's <laughs> such an intense emotion. But I guess um, are those two separate emotions for oh, you, right. fear um, and adrenaline, or do you yeah. see those as the same thing? Um. It's hard to draw the line okay. because they're so similar. Okay, you kind um, of associate yeah. them with each other. Yes, but and I but I don't like being afraid. You know, it's, you don't like that feeling. Y- but it's fun. But it's I, fun. I don't know how to. It's it's hard to describe. <laughs> We're going to leave you up to those smart people. Jessica was talking about bringing some therapists and so called psychotherapists to <laughs> let analyze me, let that. Let me yeah, shed ask some them light what's on wrong that. With me. Yeah. <laughs> I know why you like it. So let me tell you why. Yeah, tell me why I like it. I'd like to know. Um, they say that it's the self confidence that it gives you. You're just like, I just did that. I just endured that, and and that that brings you back. Are to you it. saying that I have low self confidence? No, I'm saying that you have high self confidence. Oh, okay. Well. I don't right. know how that works, but I just didn't want to insult you on there. So. <laughs> Basically, she's saying you're a prideful, cocky person. No, 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 no. We're kidding. So. That kind of makes sense of the confidence you gain from doing right. something hard, doing something difficult. I feel like yeah. that's a happy way to phrase this adrenaline surge or this fear-seeking right. mentality so many We're people have. We're giving them the benefit of the doubt. Okay, fine. One. They're gaining confidence. <laughs> I can leave a couple other ways to gain confidence, but we'll leave it to the shark seekers, that shark right. tank diver. What was he selling? Clothing? Yeah. All right. Clothing. We'll chalk so. that up to confidence. He gains <laughs> Some serious confidence. Interesting research. Anything else stand out to you? Um, no. Not okay. Really. That was a good summary. Oh, wait. Also, we have to know we're in a safe environment. Mm. You, like, to a certain extent, you have to know, I'm going to survive this. And, and then we like, you know, like a scary movie. We can put our head under the covers and we're okay. You have to know <laughs> the parachute strapped to your back. You have yes. to know that that shark tank that you're in is not going to come loose or right. unlatched. That gives you some weird sense of reassurance and so once we know we're safe we can be like okay this is i you know you have the choice of fight or flight it's not like fight or death we can build that (laughs) confidence right Merritt, you're gonna pipe in on this yeah i read an interesting article in national geographic a few months ago talking about the difference between thrill seekers and explorers what was the difference and they were saying well explorers are necessary for Humanity. They innovate. They go and do great things that eventually come down and they benefit us. But the difference is what Jessica just said is the preparation. So thrill seekers like to do things off the cuff, on the fly, for the pure rush of it, kind of completely without preparation. So that would be the unhealthy kind of risk behavior. But explorers are the ones who prepare. So yes, they'll go and they'll climb Mount Everest, but they will have everything that they need and they will have backup plans and they will have as much communication as they can get and they'll have food and so it's an interesting line to draw because one is considered a dangerous behavior and Uh the other is considered super beneficial to society we look up to those people and the word that came to mind as you were describing the difference there was selfish actually yes the explorer set out prepared as you mentioned for a greater pursuit a Mm -hmm. greater good right they're thinking of others enough to prepare themselves for whatever lies ahead whereas these thrill seekers are simply thinking about themselves and the thrill of that moment in Mm -hmm. their life i feel like this entire time i've just been 
attacked. I'm very generous and I am not selfish. No, Mike is selfish. Mike's over there sweating. We were not talking about you. We were talking about other thrill seekers of the world. No, Mike, we like you. We like you. In fact, we're going to play a little game right now with Mike. You've actually broken down some of the lesser known phobias that are out there. We're going to test your knowledge and my knowledge, I guess, about how versed you are on fear and phobia. What do you got? Yeah, there are hundreds of different phobias in the diagnostic and statistical manual that, that psychologists and psychiatrists use to You pulled out the diagnostic manual th- for That's this. right, I did. Wow. Uh, that they use to diagnose uh, different mental uh, problems. And, and so I'm going to give you a little quiz, and okay. then we'll talk a- about some of the phobias. So the first phobia that we're going to talk about is xanthrophobia. Xanthrophobia. Yeah. So it's either the fear of the color yellow or mm-hmm. it's the fear of driving through car washes. I'm going to go with the fear of driving through car washes. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, wrong. where's that buzzer it's, when we need it? It's the f- fear. Thank you, James. It's the fear of the color yellow? Yeah, it's the fear of the color yellow. And, uh, of course, with different phobias, there's different varying degrees. Uh And so people, when they see any form of the color yellow, whether it be the sun, someone's shirt, anything like that, they'll have panic attacks. Mm. And this is a a really strange phobia. It's It's not very common. It's strange. It's uncommon. It's also, I think, kind of joked about something we can laugh about. Oh, my gosh, who's afraid of the color yellow? But I imagine for some of these people, it's a paralysis that really holds their life down. They're really yeah. limited. I mean, yeah. imagine going out and seeing the sun or seeing, you know, your buddy James over there wearing a yellow shirt and being sent into a full-fledged panic attack. That's really sad. Okay, what's next? So the next one is somniphobia. Somniphobia so with this, an S. Yes. Mm-hmm. So this is either the fear of falling asleep or the fear of cell phones. I'm going to say because insomnia means the lack of sleep that this would be the fear of falling asleep. Nah, you're pulling out your Latin. That's pretty good. Okay. So somniophobia, this comprises of, it's usually associated with a fear of death. They associate sleeping with death. And so it's irrational and people will either fear that they're uh, uh, wasting time Mm -hmm. or that they have a, a loss of control by sleeping. Now that's interesting because I have a talent. Would you like to know what it is? Yes. Since we're getting acquainted today. Right. I can fall asleep in 10 seconds or less. In fact, I do fall asleep in 10 seconds or less. The, The minute I let, not the minute, the second I let my head hit a pillow, I can be out that quick. you got to take all the pillows out of yeah, here. Yeah, there you go. Please, please, let's keep it alert and alive. But what's interesting about that is when I actually think about that, it does kind of freak me out. I wouldn't say I have a phobia necessarily, but, but when I think about how quickly that subconscious sleep takes over, it can kind of weird me out a little bit. It'd be really interesting to see what would happen in a pillow fight. Mm. Like that could be actually really eventful. <laughs> Thank you for thinking of that. Yes, yeah. we'll have to stage something like that a little bit later on to test my, my talent that I just bragged about. Any other phobias, Mike? Yeah, there's a lot. So we'll, we'll go as many as we have time for. But the next one that I want to talk about is nomniophobia. Nomniophobia. Yeah. I feel like I'm in a spelling bee. I'm saying it back yeah. to you every time you... you... So, so, or it's actually nomophobia, sorry. Nomophobia. Yeah. So this is either the fear of being without mobile coverage mm-hmm. or it's the fear of eating too much. I would like to hope that in this blessed year of 2014, there has not yet been a fear discovered about the lack of mobile coverage. So I know we all possess that at some point. So we're going to go with the second one. I'm sorry. What? This is a new fear. It was coined in 2005. It's now in the DSM. And uh, it was mainly discovered in in the UK. Wow. And and sufferers are get really afraid of losing signal yeah. or, or losing coverage. And of course, you know, we, we talk about being afraid, like I, I, I'm, arachnopho- or I'm an arachnophobic, mm-hmm. but you know, that really means we hate spiders. It doesn't mean we 
you know, seize up and have paralysis because right. we see a spider. Doesn't mean we shake or we sweat or yeah. we lose it all together. So, so some people, when they lose coverage, will just panic. I might fit into this category. I just might. In fact, I'm in this building. I don't even know if I have coverage right now. I'm still trying to tap into the Wi-Fi. But so I can relate to that. All right, time for two more. All right, the next one is hylophobia. So this is either the fear of trees uh-huh. or the fear of going under bridges. Trees or bridges? Hylophobia. Mm-hmm. Let's go with bridges. <gasps> You're not doing too good today. I'm so sorry. Intelligent in so many things. Apparently not phobia. So so hylophobia involves the irrational fear of wood. Forest, forests, uh, trees, and it's often um, linked to exposure to f- films and fairy tales, which involve scary woods and childhood oh. and that kind of things. Little Red Riding Hood. And, and, and many sufferers don't grow out of this. It carries mm. on into adulthood. And, you know, a, a simple walk or stroll out into a national park can trigger uh, major anxiety. So that Christmas carol over the river and through the woods is not as happy and joyful for those suffering from this particular hylophobia. No. not Okay, not one more for us, bud. Okay, pognophobia. Pognophobia. I, I kind of think you're making these up, but okay. No. Um, pognophobia. Give it to me. So this is either the fear of beards or uh, the fear of ping pong balls. Pognophobia. Is he trying to throw one over me and could use be, the pog not. word? Fear of beards. <sighs> Woo! I was hoping I'd get you on that my, one. I'm sorry. My school was almost as high pitched as that bell itself. I'll try to rein it in and sound more authoritative. So pognophobia, this is an old one. This has been coined or around since about 1850. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, a strong fear of beards. Um, it's pretty weird. We're not going to explore too deeply where that came from, but I yeah. will say it possibly was developed by women who were sick of kissing their husbands with all that painful scrap. I don't know. Am I just speaking from Could personal be. experience? I don't know. All right. What did you learn there, James? Did you fit into any of those categories, any of those phobias? Well, um, I, I did learn that maybe I'm not arachnophobic at all. after all. Maybe I'm just really scared. Of, You're just scared. Yeah. I just don't like spiders at all. Merritt, do you fit it. into any of those phobias? Um, not any of those particularly, I don't think. Do you have a phobia? You weren't here Do in the I beginning when we kind of did round robin here. and asked that question. Um, I'm I'm one of those um, public speaking, or inter- <gasps> which is interesting as I'm talking onto the radio. No, probably not public speaking um, parties for like big groups of people. Social situations. Yeah. Interesting. We have an etiquette expert coming in today who is going to kind of pave the way and help all of you who might feel uncertain insecure in those social situations. But Merritt, I have to say, we did talk earlier a little bit about the fear of public speaking. And I, I said as a television host in front of cameras every day, yeah. I don't think there's a correlation because right now no. you're just in a room with your friends talking to a microphone. Exactly. I'm looking at a wall right now. Exactly. There's no faces there. You can't think of who's <laughs> listening. All the tens of millions of people that are uh, hearing your voice yeah, right now. Not, you know. All right. More to come on the show today. Fear is our topic. We're going to dive deeper with a couple of experts. I mentioned that social etiquette expert who will be here to help conquer your fear of small talk and social situations. We're all also talking to a leading expert in the in this in this industry in this study of fear, Jeff Wise. We'll be chatting with him. This is the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. the Matt Townsend Show. I am Brooke Walker filling in today for Matt Townsend. This has been an interesting discussion so far. We've kind of set up today's topic, which is 
fear. I wasn't sure quite what to expect from the producing staff here at BYU Radio. Said that was the topic slated for the day. I didn't know if I should be fearful. But so far, it's been a really interesting discussion on why we are fearful, things that we fear, common phobias that people have, even uncommon phobias that that some others suffer from. And really now from this point on, we want to dive into some solutions, offering some ways to crack through fear and really move forward with your life, knowing that fear can be such a paralyzing effect. It can have such a paralyzing effect on so many people. We are so excited today to welcome to the Matt Townsend Show, welcome to the program, Jeff Wise. He's a science writer and author of the book Extreme Fear, The Science of Your Mind in danger. He is also a contributing editor at Popular Mechanics. He writes for Time, The New York Times, Psychology Today, and Men's Health. He regularly blogs at psychologytoday.com and also the Huffington Post. Jeff is joining us over the phone. He lives in New York City with his wife and two sons. And I was happy to note, Jeff, in your spare time, I hear you like to fly small airplanes, gliders, and powered paragliders. Is that true? That is true, actually. Thanks, Rick. Yes, it is. Um, it's really the, the hobby that got me into the, the interest in the, in the psychology of fear because I, I would find the experience of being up in the air in one of these one of these kind of contraptions really exhilarating. But but at the same time, or or before or after the exhilaration, there comes a moment of trepidation, of anxiety before you get in the plane. Um, sometimes you might find yourself in some turbulence, or maybe the the plane is doing something you hadn't anticipated, and you feel yourself overwhelmed by this feeling of of, of intense fear. And it's really an unusual kind of psychological state to be in. I mean, really intense fear is almost like being on a drug. Your brain is flooded with these chemicals, and you might find it difficult to um, engage in, in cognition the way that you normally would. You can't mm-hmm. think straight, in other words. Mm-hmm. Um, your perception is affected. Time seems to slow down. Um, and all these strange effects are going on. And I thought, something really interesting is happening here. It's as if this force is welling up from deep within you. Um, and that led me to an to investigation of, of, of what, uh, the psychology behind that. Experience. Before we but get I'll, into that psychology, can sure. I ask you a question based on what you sure. just said? We were talking a little bit earlier in the program about that adrenaline. And the question was thrown out, is there a difference between fear and adrenaline? Or for thrill seekers, does that become the same emotion? What's your take on that? Well, there's, they're very different things. I mean, definitely um, that fight-or-flight response, that... that um, the sympathetic nervous system, uh, as psychologists call it, um, does kick in when you're very afraid. But it also kicks on in a lot of other uh, uh, situations. And so, you know, if you have a surprise party and like, you know, hello, happy birthday, everyone jumps out of the... It's my know. worst nightmare, Jeff. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, that might be scary in a way, too. But <laughs> a lot of the things that we find exciting also stimulate the sympathetic nervous system. So adrenaline and fear are very different things, but, but, but this kind of touches on... Your question is why do people become addicted to this thing that most of us think is highly unpleasant? Mm-hmm. But it's, they're really two sides of the same coin. Experiences which, which, we, which provoke anxiety in time can come to seem fun. And a lot of people who are um, professional speakers or actors once upon a time were deathly afraid, uh, def, deathly afraid of public speaking. But that, but that, 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 that butterfly's feeling in the stomach with experience, once you realize that you're not actually in danger, that this crowd isn't going to rip you to pieces uh, when you fail, um, that they're actually going to love you. And, and, and so you, you might have had this experience yourself as a public person that um, what had started out as fearful becomes exciting. And, you know, that, so, so someone who performs in a, in a public space, I think, shares something with, with an adrenaline junkie that, mm-hmm. like, 
you know, someone might might see me going up in a small plane and say, "Oh, you're an adrenaline junkie. You're taking risks. You know, you're you're crazy. You're bad." And uh, you know, a, a lot of times people don't really perceive what they themselves don't perceive what they're doing as dangerous. They have enough experience and familiarity with in the context of what they're doing that it doesn't just seem reckless. So you're talking about essentially building up a stamina, to use just kind of layman's term, build up a sure. stamina to this fear and this this rush that we experience. I'm curious to know, are some people, do some people enter this earth just better equipped to handle that rush of, of fear and, and adrenaline than others? Well, you know, I would say that that's probably a safe statement to make, although I would, I would couch that in the caveat that... Um, there's different kinds of fear. And in the, in the book, which everyone should definitely run out and buy as soon as possible, Absolutely. Uh, I have a chapter about um, a soldier who, uh, Audie Murphy was the most decorated uh, soldier of World War II. He, like, single-handedly fought off this whole attacking German division. Um, so he was very brave in a wartime setting. When he got home, you know, they trotted him around and, and put him in front of crowds to give speeches and, and to sort of boost war morale. Uh, he was terrified of that, and he was terrified of talking to pretty girls. He had a real social phobia. And so I just use that as an example of how it, it's that you can't just say that there's cowardly people and there's brave people. We're, courage is something that, that depends on the context. And, and so, so some people might have more of a certain kind of courage, um, and they might be brave in a different kind of setting. So someone might be terrified of flying a certain kind of airplane and, and, and not uh, a different kind of airplane. So, Well, you talk about that courage, and I'm curious to know, do you think people are taught to properly handle their fear? Like when we experience it, when I'm getting up to give a speech in front of 5,000 people, for example, and I've learned to adapt to that certainly over time. But I guess from a parenting perspective even, are we teaching our children, are we teaching people to adequately dig in and, and find that courage that we need to face even simple social situations? You know, I'm a parent. I've got two little kids, and I know I feel that protective urge. You know, you want your kids to not experience negative emotions. And I think we have to be careful with that because the way to overcome fear is to get in the habit of putting yourself in the face of danger. Now, not in the I should say not in the face of danger per se, but we all know the situations where you your conscious mind, you your intellect knows that a certain situation is not actually dangerous. Mm -hmm. And getting in front of a crowd is a perfect example. No harm is going to come to you if you get up and talk to a crowd of 20 people. Well, there is and, the potential of tripping on the stage, but we're going to overlook well, that that potential danger, true. okay? That's true. So but even that, you know, see so you trip, you break a few teeth, but you know, you you <laughs> overcome the, the you know, but the point just being that you get in the habit of putting yourself in situations that make yourself a little bit uncomfortable. Yes. Jeff, I'm laughing. You can't see me right now. We're obviously talking over the phone. I have huge teeth. <laughs> and if I were to identify a fear, in fact, we did a round robin with the producing staff here at the beginning of this hour saying, what's your fear? What's your fear? My fear is always hitting my teeth, knocking out my tooth because they're like 75% of my face. I have that same, I don't have particularly huge teeth, but I also have the horror, <laughs> the dental horror. Um, but no, but the point is being that, you know, you asked about, you know, training kids to, to handle fear. I, you know, I think if there's a big, big danger in, you know, coddling kids too much mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and preventing them from, uh, you know, testing that, exploring that. and. Yeah. 
Um, you know, since like so much with with kids, if you say don't do this, then they maybe they do it twice as much. Right. I think you. I think you hit a big nail on the head because so often I think I'm not a parent yet myself, but I I hear I hear my friends talk about uh, their anxiety over letting their kids fail. We often think failure is perhaps the worst thing, but I have to tell you, you think of your child or anyone you love for that matter being in a position of fear, and I think that rises the anxiety even more. Yeah, no, I think I would encourage, I mean, I hope that I encourage my kids to fail. I think failing is a great thing. In a way, it's more, more positive than success because when you fail and you keep doing it, you're subconsciously telling yourself that this is valuable to me. We're Whereas going, if you, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Well, if you, if you do something and you succeed and you get the rewards, then you tell yourself, I did it for the reward. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so if you can do something and do it over and over again and fail, you learn to you learn that failing isn't death. You learn mm-hmm. that failing isn't going to kill you, and and you become stronger and more and more resilient. I want to dive into your book. We'll do that in a, just a minute when we come back from this next break. But before we go to break, let me ask you this: You did a lot of study and research for the writing of this particular text, and I'm curious to know: Are you constantly now looking and and observing people who are in positions of fear or anxiety and seeing how they react based on your interest in this topic? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it does, you know, you, you, you sort of develop this lens where you tend to, to see things through, uh, uh, you know, you, you tend to see the fear uh, part of the equation a lot more, for sure. All right, we are talking to Jeff Wise. He's the author of Extreme Fear, The Science of Your Mind in Danger. It's an excellent book that really is a comprehensive look at this topic of fear. When we come back, we're going to talk more with Jeff about the research he did to write this book and what he learned on the other side. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. I'm Brooke Walker sitting in for Matt Townsend. Thanks for listening along. Hopefully you're finding today's topic as fascinating as I am. We're talking about fear, the science of fear, when fear can get in the way, and also how to defeat fear, get it out of your way so that you can live the life that you want to. And I have to tell you, the more we talk about it, the easier it starts to feel. We've enjoyed talking to Jeff Wise the last few minutes. He's a science writer. He's also the author of Extreme Fear, The Science of Your Mind in Danger. Jeff, when did you publish your book? The book came out in 2009. Okay, 2009. How many years of research went into that writing? Well, you know, it was kind of a, a really a process. Uh, you know, I started, uh, I had been a magazine writer for 20 years, and I'd become increasingly involved in experiential journalism. So I was doing things like going for rides in Soviet fighter jets and um, bungee jumping and, and getting myself into, into situations where I had the elevated fear. And I was also doing a lot of psychology reporting and getting into the, sort of the latest neuroscience research. And it all kind of came together. And I think the actual writing process was like a year. What's the scariest thing you've done, Jeff? <laughs> yeah. Scariest thing. Okay, this is going to seem a little, this might d- destroy my scientific credibility here, but <laughs> I did a story for Details Magazine uh-huh. uh, about 10 years ago where um, it was, I was a stripper for a day. And so I took a course <laughs> in like how to be a male stripper. Oh, boy. And I went to, and so the, the moment of truth was I went to, um, quote, unquote, deliver a pizza to this bachelorette party. Oh, dear. And I had this, like, pull-away clothes, and that was, um, 
that was a that was a descent into madness right there. We're going to just leave that story as it is. Is that okay? <laughs> we'll leave the rest up to the imagination should you choose to pursue that or not. That's kind of hysterical, and I can see where that would be pretty scary. I don't know if it's more scary for you or the person at the door. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay, well, definitely you can you can then um, speak to the, the emotion of fear. Talk to me a little bit about the, the research that you put into this, and particularly the studies that you kind of executed as part of your research. Right. So um, I took part in a study that was conducted uh, by a researcher out at um, uh, SUNY Stony Brook in Long Island. And basically she was trying to, you know, in the book I talk, the book is called Extreme Fear, but I really talk about all kinds of fear, you know, social anxiety and and all sorts of, you know, real day-to-day fear, because I think that's really what people need the most help in dealing with. But, But a lot of the research is um, you know, the Defense Department is funding a lot of research. They want to know how soldiers are going to respond under pressure and in the grip of intense fear. And so it's difficult. How do you, in a laboratory setting, really scare um, the lights out of somebody? And so what they do is they um, put up notices at skydiving centers and say, look, if you're going to do skydiving for the first time, you know, we'll, we'll cover the cost of it if you let us attach some sensors to your body. So I heard about this, and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm all over this. So I, I volunteered for this study. They put me in a hospital with, with all kinds of sensors to measure my, you know, physiological outputs and uh, heart rate and body temperature and whatnot. And then I went up in a plane with these same sensors, and they were having me do, like, psychological tests on a laptop computer as the plane is going up and up. And it's, it's very difficult to concentrate because it's I'd terrifying. imagine, yeah. And so I jumped out with the sensors and everything, and then they, and the, you know, it was, tr- it was truly terrifying. And then... Later, they, they, you know, they told me what, how my physiology had responded. Uh, and it was very interesting kind of to look at it from a scientific perspective, you know, because you're feeling it as a purely emotional state. But, uh, but where the scientists will look at you, and they'll see a mechanistic uh, action taking place. Mm-hmm. So at a subconscious level, all of these things are happening. The fear, I like to think of fear as a mechanism. It's like um, this emergency machinery that is stowed below the level of consciousness. But then when the brain finds itself in a potentially dangerous situation, out comes this toolkit. Um, it's like this emergency crew comes and takes over um, and begins operating your brain for you. Um, a lot of times people feel like they lose control when they're in fear because these, these very ancient circuits kick in and you find yourself running or screaming or whatever it may yeah, be. Yeah. So when you looked at the results of that study, you're in, you're in the airplane, you've got the little monitors all over your body, right. you jump out, you get on the ground safely, thank goodness, and the scientists kind of review with you the data that your body produced. Was that equivalent to what you were feeling from an emotional standpoint? Well, it took it took it took a couple months actually to get the data back because it, it it you know it's, it's it has to be compiled and processed, okay, and analyzed and whatnot. Um, and a lot of these numbers didn't really mean a lot to me until she explained it to me what 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 this all meant. And basically, the gist of it is that she was looking for um, uh, the big question is how stress resilient can people be? Meaning, you take a soldier, you put them into combat. And then when you remove them from combat, are they going to be okay? Are they going to get post-traumatic stress disorder? Um, and and the, the, the upshot of what she was finding was that the key to being resilient in the face of stress, in other words, the key to dealing with extreme fear, mm-hmm. is the degree to which you can, your body can quickly respond to danger by flooding your body with chemicals and all the other things that the fear response does to you that we all know, you know, the, the the sweaty palms, the, sh- the, the trembling, The whatever. blotchy red neck, that's what always happens to me. Yeah, right, all those things that automatically happen. How quickly can the body 
kick those responses in, and then bring them back down to baseline. So she, so what she was saying, you know, we tend to think of a brave person as someone who, like Clint Eastwood, you know, faces down the ombre and he's, uh, you know, doesn't tremble, doesn't twitch. He's just got that steely look in his eye. From from the perspective of these researchers, it's not a question of, of maintaining that kind of steely calm. It's going full bore, unleashing that response, but then bringing it back down. Being able to rein it in once that situation or that scare has passed. Right. So people who aren't stress resilient, they'll get they'll find themselves in a scary situation, like maybe they almost get in a car accident or something, and then they and then their heart their heart keeps racing uh-huh. for a long time. And and so she, one of the things I want to know is how, you know, how can you tell who's going to be resilient in that way beforehand? And one of and it turns out it's very very difficult to tell just by looking at somebody whether they're going to handle extreme stress well. See, I feel like I could look at some people, not all people, but I feel like I could look at some people and say, yeah, you're going to be a basket case, but not so. That is true. In fact, the converse is not true. It is it, you can tell who's going to be who's going to do poorly. Okay. It's hard to t- it's hard to tell who's going to do well. So, meaning if someone's like just inc- incredibly neurotic, like Woody Allen, I you know don't sue me, Woody <laughs> Allen, but you know he's probably going to be terrible in that kind of high stress. Yeah, situation. yeah. Funny, but, we have Woody Allen on the line right now. He actually <laughs> no, no. In fact, his lawyers are knocking on my door right now. Right, right, right. But okay, so you can tell when someone's going to maybe lose it under the pressure of fear, but you can't always determine or predict someone's going to do well. If someone's not, you know, particularly neurotic, if someone's like a more or less normal person, you know, it's kind of a famous trope in war movies that, you know, you've got these, it's the tough muscle guy who like winds up, you know, weeping like a baby when the, when the shooting starts. Yeah. Interesting. Let's take a, kind of true. Can we take a little bit of a right turn? Because you mentioned something um, before the commercial break that I thought I'd like to ask you a little bit more about. And that's the, the idea of this fear addiction. People right. who are downright addicted to fear. Define that for us. How do you know if you fit into that category of fear addiction? Well, I think that if you... So, so look, you're, you're, you're talking about someone like an evil Knievel type of person who, um, you know, puts themselves in harm's way. And, um, and, and, you know, is, 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 is terrifying themselves and then um, does it again and again, even though it doesn't make any sense. Why would you do something that's so unpleasant? But as I mentioned before, the person who's doing it oftentimes doesn't, uh, doesn't see what they're doing as fearful as much as exciting. Mm. Okay, so it's a very fine line between excitement and anxiety. And there are very few of us who can you know, compare or hold a candle to an evil Knievel, for example. But I'm, I'm thinking of watering it down on a daily basis. Don't you know someone, I know I do in my life, who is constantly seeking out, I'm going to use the word drama instead of fear, mm-hmm. but that same rush, that same adrenaline, that same anxiety, don't you, I mean, speak to that a little bit if you can, the everyday person who sometimes seeks this out unnecessarily. Yeah, there's definitely people who seem to um, walk into trouble rather than avoid it or, um, you know, make it go away. I, you know, I, I really think that that, you know, if there's, a, there's all kinds of self-destructive behavior, though. I mean, and I don't, I don't know if I would necessarily, I mean, if you're talking about drama, like a bipolar or a borderline personality, a borderline personality or narcissistic kind of person who's um, just, just making trouble of every stripe, um, that, per, that person probably needs a therapist. Yeah, there you, know you go. I mean? We'll hook them up with someone, someone with a PhD at the end but of I mean, their title, right? Danger. I mean, actually, like yeah. someone who's going to like really. Okay, I interviewed a guy named Travis Travis Pastrana, who's okay. kind of a famous daredevil kind of guy. 
and he's broken every bone in his body. He'd like, he, he was the first person to like double backflip a motorcycle and stuff. So fair to say he's lost a few teeth in his life. He's, yeah, yeah. he's been in bad shape. And he does incredible, he jumped out, he jumped out of an airplane without a parachute um, and met somebody on the way down who had a parachute and like hooked him into it. And that then is he, just and crazy. So it seems pretty crazy, but I mean, he just has a different uh, baseline for for what is normal for him. What I thought was very interesting was that he he um he wasn't he, he didn't seem unusually fearful about the situations he would get himself into. Hmm. But he had night terrors. So he um would find himself like running down the hallway of a, of a hotel that he was staying in um with no idea like how did I get here? Because he he oh and he sleeps in the nude too. So he would jump up out of bed and run down the hallway like screaming and have no idea why he was doing it and like plus he's locked out of his hotel room and he's naked. Now he's really in trouble. Yeah. Well, so you talk about that emotional connection to fear. Is it strictly emotional or is there any sort of, have scientists been able to link any genetic connection to fear like adrenaline seekers or thrill junkies? Um, I don't think there's been any any genetic studies. Um, it would probably be very difficult to untangle. It's a it's a it's a it's a really vast, ancient, and, and kind of interconnected response. I mean, we say fear in in the kind of you know layman's term, but really it's a whole network of interconnected responses. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think I don't think at, at this point really any, anybody could say with with scientific validity that that. It, that, that courage is, is like inherited or anything. Okay. Um, well, when we come back, we're going to get into some solutions. Before we go to break, though, let me set that up by asking you, why do you think fear is so hard to overcome? As we, as we kind of bridge this conversation into the solution side of it, set that up for us. Why is it so hard to beat fear, to calm fear, to, to, calm fear, to get rid of the red flushing on the neck or to stop the palms from sweating? Why is that so hard for humans to master, do you think? Because fear is there for a reason. It's to keep us from getting killed. And if it was too easy to overcome, we'd get ourselves killed. That's a good answer. (laughs) I like that answer. I like that answer a lot. We're going to go to break, take a couple of minutes uh, just to breathe and regroup here. Jeff, you're fantastic. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. It's been fun. It's clear you know your stuff. Jeff, of course, is the author of Extreme Fear, The Science of Your Mind in Danger. When we come back, we're going to pin Jeff down on some solutions. Do you have a fear of public speaking? Do you have a fear, a social fear, a fear of flying? Think about those fears over the next couple of minutes. And when we come back, Jeff's going to offer some solutions about how we can overcome those fears. Surefire strategies that will work a difference in your own life. That's when we come back on the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to Sirius XM 143 on BYU Radio. show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. I'm your host, at least for the day, Brooke Walker, filling in for my buddy Matt as he takes a couple of days off. And it has been our privilege today to chat with one of the leading experts in the industry. I'm going to call it an industry because there are many publications that support this this notion of fear, why we crave it, why we seek it, why some of us are addicted to it. And probably more importantly, how to overcome it. Jeff Wise is joining us on the phone from New York. He is a talented writer and researcher. He blogs for psychologytoday.com, also the Huffington Post. And we've mentioned he's the author of the book, Extreme Fear, the Science of Your Mind in Danger. Jeff, how are we doing? Good, thanks. You with us still? Yes, I am. We haven't lost you yet. 
No, not yet. We're so glad because we're really intrigued with this idea of building a stress resilience. How can we become more stress resilient? Talk us through some, some strategies there. Well, you know, I think one of the first things that people should realize is that, you know, we, we tend to think of ourselves as kind of a unitary whole, and we take responsibility uh, for our emotional state, and we tend to think, well, I am a nervous person, I am an anxious person, I am afraid of airplanes, airplanes are scary things. For, I'm just using airplanes as an example. That's a good one. But, but you know, um, really, it's helpful to think of, this, of, of your fear response as a part of your body in the same way that your toe is uh, or your elbow is. It's, just, it's, it's a part of your body that you've inherited, that you have, that's, that it is the way it is through combination of, of genes and, and the environment that you've been in. It's not really accessible to your conscious mind. So until it springs up, you don't really know what it's going to do. And so don't, you know, if, if, you can, if you can take a step back and don't get too emotionally attached to it and think, like, this is who I am, this is how I am, and think of it as something that you can work on, that you can change, that, um, that, that, that with a little focus and a little attention, you can shift your own personal baseline. Well, help, so, us, help us identify how to do that, because if you compare it to a body part, let's say I hurt my wrist, right? right? I can wrap my wrist up in an ace bandage. I can ice it. There are some tactical things I can do to soothe that pain. If I'm feeling fear, I like your example of flying, for example, that flying fear. What are some things I can do to soothe it, calm it down, and ease the ache? So fear of flying is an example of what psychologists call a specific phobia. So you're, you're fearful of some specific thing. And it's very easy to identify what causes the fear, and, it's, and, and you can watch yourself. You know. So say I'm afraid of spiders, okay. and, I, and I go near a spider, and I can, I can watch my heart rate go up. I can, I can um, you know, feel my palms get sweaty. And you can say to yourself, okay, I'm going like, to analyze my, my own response, and I'm going to, and I'm going to think about whether there's a real danger, if my, whether my fear response is rational, um, and, and think about um, maybe I can reframe this in a way that, that it's going to seem less scary to me. It's going to generate less of a fear response. The, the, peculiar, the funny thing about fear is that we fear things, but we also fear our own response to those things. So, so one of the reasons people get phobic is, they, is you know, something bad happens, and, and, and the, the fear response itself becomes a focus of fear. Interesting. And you, get, you can spiral out of control. And this is what really lies beneath things like anxiety, uh, panic attacks. Mm-hmm. And so you become afraid of fear. And so that when I talk about kind of taking a step back and just looking at your fear and thinking, you know what, my heart is racing, my palms are sweating, but that's okay. I feel uncomfortable, but that's okay. I don't need to, I don't need to, go, I don't need to worry about my own physiological response. I think that is so fascinating that oftentimes the fear is based on our response of things and not necessarily the actual situation at hand. That is fascinating. Well, I like to say that when you're in a, when you're in a terrifying situation, you, you have really two things. You've got two main problems. You've got the thing that you're terrified of, and you've also got your own fear. And so if you can reduce or eliminate that fear response, uh-huh. you've cut your problem in half. Well, and you're a parent, so you get this idea of talking a kid off a cliff, so to speak, right? There are not monsters under your bed. There's nothing to be afraid of. Essentially, that's what you're saying we adults need to do for ourselves. As you take the flying example, you run through the statistics and you realize that it's not as dangerous as we might anticipate. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I find it very useful to think of yourself as you're a parent of your own self, if that makes any sense. You know, we have these emotional responses that are not rational. Mm-hmm. And so our ra- the rational part of our brain has to look at ourselves with, with compassion and say, you know what, I have this, I have this response um, and I'm going to deal with it with open eyes. 
um, with patience, with understanding. I'm not going to beat myself up because I have it. Um, and and you can uh, you know oh, the thing I was going to say was that these specific phobias that we we started talking about are very very amenable to treatment. They're one of the easiest things in all of psychology to treat. You, you, there's a thing called habituation therapy, and you basically desensitization therapy. You 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 just you you approach it gradually. And uh, you know if you're afraid of spiders, you might look at pictures of a spider in a book, and then you might play with a plastic spider. Then you might look at a spider in a glass box. Um, and so forth. And that kind of approach is really, it, it's, it, I, over 90% of people uh, can, can overcome a specific phobia. Let me ask you this. There's overcoming fears, and then there's this idea, this notion of using our fears to our own advantage, kind of the flip side of what we're talking about. How can we use those fears to actually benefit us or pay off or do good? Oh, well, I mean, one of, one of the major themes of my book is the idea that, okay, we tend to think of fear as a negative thing, something to be avoided at all costs. But in a way, fear gives us superpowers. You know, when you're in a scary situation, you, you know, you're stronger, you have more endurance, you don't feel pain, you have incredible powers of concentration. Um, you know, performance-enhancing drugs that people take uh, in athletics, mm-hmm. a lot of those drugs mimic the effects of fear. Really? Yeah, and so basically, um, you know, you're you, you, you're never going to be uh, as as strong as 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 if your life is, is is at stake. So you're not as limited as you might think you are. So people, even in a fearful moment, can find the ability to concentrate. Uh, yeah, they they or the opposite. Unfortunately, I mean, this is this this gets back to the question of who's going to perform well. Sure. You know, and and pressure. Some people, you know, I, I, you talk to a lot. Of, I, oh, by the way, I want to mention that on my website, jeffwise.net. If people go, you know, I, I sometimes people will send me questions asking me the, their own problems about you know or advice, um, and people write in also. And uh, I did a, I did a post for Psychology Today. I also put it up on my blog about. The, the the fact that your the sensation of time seems to slow down like kind of like in the matrix where the bullets go in slow motion it's not yeah. quite as extreme as that but there is really people get into car accidents they, they, they it seems like the cars are kind of colliding in slow motion um, that kind of effect is real um, and you know, when I did a post about this people just like poured in they're like yes I experienced that exact same thing it's very surprising we're so rarely in that kind of state we're so good at avoiding it modern life is is built you know largely to prevent that kind of thing from happening to us mm-hmm. you know our mm-hmm. ancestors 20,000 years ago all the time were getting attacked by saber-toothed tigers or what have you so it was probably a daily experience but we get to avoid it so it's unfamiliar to us so it's a really strange psychological we're really good at avoiding, aren't we? Whether it be a saber-toothed tiger or uh, an airplane flight, or we're really good at avoiding what makes us what makes us afraid. But I like your advice, just to hit it head on, learn to deal with it, and even use it to your advantage. I'm curious to know, over the years, as you've researched this topic and you published your book, Extreme Fear: The Science of Your Mind in Danger, a couple of years ago, has your perception, your personal perception on fear, or your personal tolerance toward fear, changed over the last few years? You know, I, I think that it's kind of become a habit. You know, I think I, I tend to not really um, think that, uh, you know, if something scary happens, I, I, um, I, I, I tend to, I think, I'm, I think I've gotten good. I think it's, I think it's a skill that you can, that you can learn, I, you know. I, but, I, but I always tell myself this. I mean, I think this is maybe one of my 
personal fatal flaws is that I think I'm good at handling it. And then the next time I'm in this situation, I think, what have I done? I can't believe I got myself <laughs> in this situation. And this is horrible. The second I went, I've been skydiving twice, and the second time was worse because I was sitting at the, 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 the open door of this airplane yeah. thinking, you idiot, how, how could you possibly have <laughs> agreed to do this twice? Uh, oh, so. that's funny. I think we can all connect with the time when we've said, what were we thinking and why are we signing ourselves up for it again? One last question before I let you go. Has this changed the way you parent? I'm curious about the parenting aspect of this because as we talked about a few minutes ago, I think so many fears are associated with parenting and with, and with family relationships. So how has this changed the way you parent? Well, you know, it's one thing to, it's, it's really easy to like talk about the psychology and the studies and the research. When it comes to your own kid, you know, climbing up, up on top of the bunk bed and like balancing on the railing and you just think, get down, you idiot. You know, you, 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 <laughs> you can't help but have that protective instinct. You fear, a parent fears more for their kid than they fear for themselves. Very true. Very true. At least we're not protecting them from saber-toothed tigers though, right? Well, I've got that. Going. I guess that's an upside. Jeff, really a privilege to talk to you today. We'll let people know your website, jeffwise.net, right? Yep. Jeffwise.net and any other places we can find you or read more about your research and writing. Uh, the cover story of Reader's Digest in January is talking about how, why some people are brave and some people aren't. So very germane. Well, we appreciate you sharing your expertise. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed chatting with you this afternoon. Well, it's been a huge pleasure for me, so thank you. That's Jeff Wise, a science writer and author of Extreme Fear, The Science of Your Mind in Danger. You can read his work, as he mentioned, Reader Di- Reader's Digest, as well as the New York Times and Psychology Today. His website, once again, jeffwise.net. Do you feel solutions? Do you feel more calm? Do you feel like you have what you need, the skills that you need to conquer your fear? There's one fear we haven't quite dived into deeply, and that is the social fear that often rises in people as they're in social situations, they're at parties, they're trying to meet new people or build relationships. Coming up, we have an etiquette expert who's actually going to give us the words to say in those situations where you don't know what to say, fill the silence with something other than fear. That's coming up on the Matt Townsend Show here on BYU News Radio. I'm Brooke Walker. We'll try that one more time. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. I'm Brooke Walker sitting in for Matt today and so glad to be here as we've been diving into a really interesting, juicy topic. That's the topic of fear, why we let it rule our lives, why some people are addicted to the idea of fear, that adrenaline rush that comes with it, and more importantly, how we can overcome those feelings of fear and crack out some real solutions that will help. I'm really excited to introduce you to our next guest. She's a good friend of mine. Janine Otley is an etiquette blogger. She's a wife, a mom, an entrepreneur. She runs a website, thepinkteapot.blogspot.com. She's our go-to gal for all things etiquette, and we brought her in today to tap into a little bit of a lighter side of this topic, but I think still an important one. Janine, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. We're so glad to have you here at the top of every list. If you poll people and you say, what are you afraid of? Hands down, there will always be public speaking. That's up there. But also people are afraid of good old fashioned conversation. They're afraid of engaging with strangers, socializing, being in those public party social scenes. Why do you think that's such a deep rooted fear for so many people? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I can think of my husband. He definitely is afraid of that. Well, not afraid, but it's not his forte. You know, I think if you're an introvert, naturally, Mm -hmm. that you don't tend to want to put yourself out there. And there are a lot of introverts, I think. But it's also intimidating. It seems 
seems like such a, a vast topic, being able to speak in public or being able to carry on a, an eloquent conversation. Mm-hmm. Really, it's not that hard, but it takes practice. I love that you use the word practice because you've brought some skill-based solutions. A lot of times we talk about solutions as this kind of ambiguous, wide perspective, here's what you can do. But these are tactical, practical things that you can practice, get good at skills, right, that you can learn? Yes, absolutely. First, you say it comes down to genuine interest. I think it does. You know, you you do need to be genuine when you're speaking to someone, whether it's a three-minute conversation and, and you've never met them or you're delving in a little bit deeper and you're getting to know somebody, just you being in the moment, mm-hmm. present, and mm-hmm. and connecting with the person to whom you're speaking makes a huge difference, and they can feel that. And I think it enhances the whole experience. I totally agree. I was actually speaking at a college recently, just a couple of weeks ago, to about 500 students in the room, and it was it was meant to be kind of a management communication skill-based lecture. And I was taking questions at the end, and one student raised his hand and said, how do you feel about networking? Now, knowing that they are learning all about networking, right, and all about communication at this college age and level of their life, I said, I hate networking. And there was this shock and this gasp (laughs) in the room, and I had to quickly jump in and clarify, I hate the idea of networking because so often it's not done properly. And to me, the proper way comes down to sincerity, being genuine, building those real relationships instead of building relationships just for your gain. It speaks to what you're saying, that sincere nature. Right. I think that people can tell when you're vapid, you know, and and when it's all for personal gain and you're not Mm -hmm. genuinely interested in what the other person has to say, that's apparent, Mm -hmm. I think. And so, yeah, I, I... Being genuine is important. (laughs) I like that. You talk about this give and take, and and you kind of compare a conversation to a dance a little bit. Yeah. I think that you need to look at it as 50-50. It needs to be 50% you, you, 50% the other person. You may not always get that, so you can't necessarily expect that. But as an extrovert and as someone who doesn't mind talking, I tend to be overbearing in conversations. Me too. (laughs) Here we are. Me too. We're two peas in a pod. (laughs) And my husband would listen all day. So I guess I married just the right person. But it's great to be able to interact. You know, you ask a question and then you allow for the other person to speak. And that not only helps you to maybe hone in on your listening skills, but helps the other person to come out of their shell maybe a little bit and and helps you get to know the other person. I so connect with this. I was just married about a year ago, as you know. And Mm -hmm. so prior to that, during my dating days, I was an interrogator. Janine. I was the worst. <laughs> I remember one, one day in particular sitting with this young man, right? And I was so good at asking questions. There's kind of that give and take you talk about, that yeah. 50-50. And yeah. I thought, I am interrogating this yeah. poor guy. Like, I can't even let him reciprocate one single question because I am firing at him. It's what I do for a living. So I like to think I'm fairly good at it. Right. But there is that balance. Yeah. Yeah. It's not an interview. It's a conversation. And that's the great thing is that you're allowing the other person to come into your life as well. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a balance. And so if you think of it 50, 50 Uh and allow the other person, even if they are shy, even if they seem a little disinterested, distracted, whatever, if you allow that other person to, to come back at you with a question or to give their two cents, it really does make the conversation more meaningful for both of you. Now you're taking a risk that there might be some silence. Absolutely. Is that okay? Uh, Yeah. You have to be confident in who you are and confident in the silence. Cord and I, my husband and I say this all the time, that we like that we can be silent with each other in the same Mm -hmm. room and that it's okay. Expand that to whomever you're with. Silence is okay. And, And we need to be confident enough in ourselves to 
to be all right with that silence and not make it awkward ourselves. If it's awkward for the other person, that's that's not good. But we don't want to make it awkward for ourselves. You so. hit the nail on the head. If, if it's awkward for the other person... It's too bad, but it's also not your problem, right? You have to own that silence, own that presence. It's almost, silence kind of feels like a a gift of trust a little bit, that you're trusting that person to just be with you in that space. Mm -hmm. And I find sometimes in an interview format, silence brings out the best in people sometimes. If you allow it to just marinate for a minute and sit, then sometimes you see a side of of that person that you might not see if you were so anxious about thinking, what what am I going to say next? I agree. My dad, a few years ago, when I first went on Studio 5, he said, you always say, um, and he said, you just need (laughs) to... Just stop saying, uh, I said, thank you for the, for the constructive criticism. <laughs> of course you are, because you're perfectly polite all the time. <laughs> no. I mean that sincerely. She well, is. You're so sweet. Thank she you. Is. But I, it was an interesting comment because it made me think that really, um, is a way to gap two thoughts together because mm-hmm. you don't necessarily want the other person to jump in and say something. And we do it subconsciously. No one's, you know, trying to be a narcissist, but, right. but we, we try we say um to connect two thoughts together because we're not finished speaking but yeah. sometimes that silence is good it's a filler so we can get rid of the filler and just embrace and like i said mar- let the silence marinate a little bit yes i like this next point you say always be your best self we want to see it all but not all at once yeah i realized as i was reading over this today that that is from Hitch. I was thinking about that and I was like, where is that from? Janine has now quoted Will Smith. <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, it's a great, It's one of my favorite movies. But anyway, yeah, it, it's true. We don't need to see every part of you all at, at once. And so I think that we need to keep conversation, especially with people we don't know that well, to mm-hmm. neutral topics if possible. Mm-hmm. And when things get volatile, find some kind of common ground and, and tone it down a little bit. We don't want to get in fights with everybody we speak to. You see the fights on Facebook. You see them. I mean, in person, I think then people are a lot braver behind a computer, behind a phone. But I think that we need to try to stay on neutral, you know, subjects and and give it away a piece at a time. Leave some mystery. I like that. I was listening to another radio program just this morning, and the host admitted that he lives in a neighborhood where he doesn't share some of the same beliefs or religious values as people around him, but he said he's always respectful and conscious of their mindset, of their belief system, and he tries to adapt. He doesn't change himself, but he tries to adapt his tone and his conversation in a respectful way toward their attitudes and beliefs, and I thought that was so perfect. It kind of speaks to what you're saying. We want to see who you are, but you also have to temper it to the moment. Absolutely, which without compromising our integrity, we need to be aware of those around us, which, like I always say, you know, manners is about helping those around us feel comfortable. That is the whole point of manners, not to be snooty and so and I think that that is being conscious and aware of who who you are with and who your present company is and and so I definitely think that it's not about compromising who you are your belief system whatever but it's about being respectful and caring about those you're with again and and don't you think it's it's possible to accomplish uh two things you can be warm Mm -hmm. and you can be respectful. I mean, a lot of times people, I think they feel like they need to break down those, those personal barriers in order to be real and to be warm. You can still be warm and thoughtful and be appropriate. Yes. And professional, you know, Mm -hmm. if the case is, you know, as, as it's necessary, I, I totally agree. You don't have to be insincere or cold to be professional. And I think that people do get those things mixed up. And, and sometimes, especially as, 
we're in the workplace. Yeah. You know, you think you can't be warm and you can't be sincere because we're trying to be professional. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. I'm no longer going to say I heard that on Hitch. I'm going to say my friend Janine taught me that. <laughs> my friend Janine taught me that. Um, I like this point too. You say just because you're different doesn't mean you have nothing in common. How can you find that common ground in situations where you feel like, you know, he's a duck and you're a fish? Yeah, I, well, you know, I, I think that what you do need to build on is any commonality. So let's say you're on a plane together, you know, and, and I'm talking to a 70 year old man who does not have any of the same belief systems I've established in the last five minutes, has none of the same belief systems I have. He's from the East coast. I'm from the West, you know, has no kids, has never been married. So we've, we don't have a lot in common, seemingly. Totally different lifestyles. Right. So where, where, did, where is he traveling to? You know, where's his final destination? Find, even if, they're, even if they seem tedious or insignificant, mm-hmm. find some kind of common ground. We're all here together trying to work it out in life. And we, there's common ground to be found. But sometimes we do have to dig a little deeper in order to find that. And some people don't want to give that up as easily. And so find the common ground. You know, use a use something as an anchor, whether it's a speaker, you're at a, you're an engagement where there's a speaker or you're at a gala or you're at some kind of social gathering, you know, use something, use something in the room or, or, or your surroundings as an anchor to be able to jump off. I like that. Find an anchor mm-hmm. in your surroundings. That That's a practical, tactical tip right there. You you say this is called the art of conversation for a reason. It is an art, isn't it? It is. And when we first learn how to paint or sing or dance, we are not on a professional stage or we're not, you know, selling our art for $500,000 a piece, right? It's, this is a, it's a talent. I do believe this is a talent and it's something that we have to cultivate. And it may come more naturally to some people than to others. And my husband always says I have the talent of being eloquent, which I love you for saying that. That is such a sweet compliment. He's so sweet. Thank you. But I, you know, I've watched him over the years. And even though that's not something that necessarily is natural for him, Mm -hmm. he has put his best effort into being a, a good conversationalist. And I'm I'm way impressed. He, you've rubbed off on him. He's probably rubbed off on you in <laughs> different ways, too. He's rubbed off on me more than kind I've of rubbed off on that subtle silence that we talked about. <laughs> yes. Well, when we come back, you've put together a list, which I think will be really helpful. It's a list of conversation starters. These are things that you can say. You can bring up at the drop of a hat. If you really don't know where to go, these will kickstart your conversation in a very appropriate way. We're going to come back and talk to Janine Otley, etiquette blogger at thepinkteapot.blogspot.com. More advice from her. This is The Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. show on BYU Radio. I, by the tone of my voice, you probably can tell, am not Matt Townsend. Matt's off this week. So it's my privilege and pleasure to sit in as guest host today. We've had a lot of fun talking about fear, the science of fear, 
some interesting research, fascinating research on what causes fear internally. And, and we've been talking the last half hour, the last hour on some solutions, how we can really manage our fear and actually move forward past the fear to just create a better life for ourselves, a more comfortable existence, if you will. For the last few minutes, we've been talking with Janine Otley. She is an etiquette expert, a good friend of mine. She blogs at the pinkteapot.blogspot.com. I always crave her advice because you say it in, in a proper way, but you also say it in a real way. Right. Well, thank you. We're just getting real. Thank you. Yeah, I, I hope so. And I always find myself using my best manners around her. <laughs> I think I just said, please forgive me as I'm stroking my hair, trying to be all proper and etiquette savvy. But you just gave us some great advice on how we can cut through the fear of those social social situations, the fear of not knowing what to say when we're talking with perfect strangers or even when we're talking with people that are just plain awkward themselves, trying to navigate their emotions and their conversational rhythm. You've got some great conversation starters. So let me make sure I read the scene right. We're, we're talking to a person. Silence falls upon the conversation, which we just talked about, isn't necessarily a bad thing. You don't know what to say. Is that an adequate situation? Absolutely. Yeah. What do we say? Whether we know them or not, I think that these apply. Okay. So hopefully they'll be helpful. Um, the first thing we can do is ask a question. So, you, I mean, let's avoid the weather, right? That's always the cliche. And it's actually funny because my dad, I think he's listening. He actually, <laughs> and he's in California, but he oh, asks me always how the weather is. How is the weather? Yeah, but he he wants to know how the weather is because he always wants to rub it in that it's 85 and sunny. <laughs> so that's, you know, a subtle but not so kind way right. to say, hey, it's better over here. No, we appreciate yeah. our dads. But I will say the one, the one situation that stopped me forever from asking about the weather, I work at a news station, mm-hmm. as you know, there are meteorologists right. all around. And one day I passed our head meteorologist in the hall. We ended up small chatting and it came down to the weather. And I thought, hold on, I'm talking to a meteorologist. This is not cool. So I, from that point forward, decided to never, ever Ask bring up the weather in a work conversation. I like that. Ask the question. Yeah. So you can say, you know, what brings you here today? If you're at an event, an event together, you know, sitting next to each other, you don't, I don't, I don't like to sit next to someone when I, and I, and not meet them. I always yeah. introduce myself. And yeah. so you do have to put yourself out there a little bit. Um, if you know them, you know, what have you been up to lately? What's new? That kind of thing. You mm-hmm. just ask me that on break. I did. Uh, What do you have going on this next week? You can even, you know, get a little more specific, especially if you know the person Mm -hmm. a little bit, Mm -hmm. so that you can kind of start to engage. And what I like about that is it gives them the opportunity to essentially say what they want to say and bring up the best points about their life or their week or or themselves. You're kind of putting the ball in their court in a polite way. Right. And and if it's not, if it's someone you don't know, and you're passing them in the hall. How are you? I just, oh, I, I would so, no, I don't. Skip it? Yeah. Skip, skip. How are you? If you are walking past each other and you're both still going. Uh huh. You're in motion. Right. How are you? What are you going to say? What I'm, are you? I'm terrible. My cat died. You know, you're not right. going to say that. Exactly. You're going to say, great. How are you? So, I mean, find something like, I love your cardigan. Something like that. You know, don't, don't, don't ask how are you unless you really want to sit down and find out how somebody is. You know what? I am so guilty. I am so guilty of that. <laughs> I say it probably 50 times a day. How are you doing? It, it's a habit. It's not, it's not that it doesn't make anyone a bad person, but we get into the habit of saying, how are you? I do it too. Uh-huh. But find something else to say, you know, you look great today. It is so good to see you, you know, something like that and be sincere. Find something sincere to say. I love that. You just cracked my mind open. So compliments another. <laughs> 
way that you can kind of bridge that silence. Yeah, it is. It's um, I, I don't know that I that it's one of my necessarily one of my five points. But yes, you can always a sincere compliment. Oh, yeah, it is. It's number two. Um, pay a sincere compliment. And so find something that, you know, there's someone passing me in the hall a couple weeks ago. Well, it was longer than that, a couple months ago. And she always has the cutest outfits on, but she had this amazing skirt on. And I just, you know, from 20 feet away, I said that your skirt, I'm thinking your skirt is gorgeous. And so when I got closer, uh-huh. I made sure that she knew it. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't really matter if if it's taken well, if it's not. You put yourself out there and you let them know you think they look pretty. You know, you saw their son do this or that, you know, whatever. You just hone in on something specific. Use items around you as anchors. What do you mean by that? So... Like I had said earlier before the break, you know, if you're at a speaking engagement together, use use the speaker. Have you ever heard this person speak before? You know, what do you think about what they just said? You know, mm-hmm. you don't want to be rude and, and be talking during the presentation necessarily, but you can use an item, you know, even a decoration. You can use a speaker, uh, anything, anything. I mean, even waiting in line for food, you can use, I, I, when I put this together, I was thinking of last night. I was at a restaurant, and this lady said, this orange Fanta, as I'm waiting for my food, and she's yeah. waiting for hers, yeah. she said, this orange Fanta is, is um, they have this at the at this restaurant, the same restaurant in Italy at the, at the military base. And I said, they have this restaurant at the military base? We got into a whole conversation about fast food restaurants in Europe and blah, 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 blah. And this is a random stranger. Random stranger. Until she and I both got in our food and we left. And... It was great. It it actually brightened my day. I hope it brightened hers. But I was genuinely interested in what she had to say. That kind of leads into your next point, which I love this. Ask for help or advice. Can we do that of a stranger? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that when we're sitting with someone and, and you do have that awkward silence, put yourself in the passive role a little bit. Uh, and... And if that's comfortable for you or not, I don't know. For me, it's not necessarily. But put yourself in the passive role. Ask for advice or ask a question. You know, you can... It, it's a great way to rescue a crashing conversation. I love that. A crashing conversation. Yeah. Well said. We've all been in those. <laughs> can you... Here's my question. Can you can you offer up something about yourself even if someone hasn't asked? What's yeah. the fine line between doing that and being boastful or being, I mean, narcissistic for lack of better words, but bringing the conversation back to yourself because they might not have the skills or the courtesy to ask anything of you. Right. Yeah. No, I think that that's fine. I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's self-serving necessarily, you know, to, to say something about yourself, but you might want to use something about yourself in order to springboard asking a question or pulling something else out. You don't want to ask questions that will give you yes, no, I'm fine answers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it, you can offer up something about yourself and make yourself a little more, more vulnerable and personable. And then maybe they feel a little more open to share. I, I've heard before, I've had people say, I've in, in response to a just a concern of mine that, that maybe I'm not as, I'm not perceived at to be the person I really am. Hmm. And I've had people say, well, you kind of come across as intimidating. Like you have it all put together, which makes me laugh hysterically because really, cause you do really, cause I don't. (laughs) And you know, you come visit me at my house, I'm hair sticking straight up and you know, and I'm in my pajamas and dude, I don't have it together, (laughs) but I, um, and so maybe putting yourself out there a little bit Mm -hmm. and, and letting somebody, 
have a piece of you that's a little more more vulnerable side of you really helps people to feel more open and welcome and maybe not so in my case for some reason and come across as intimidating well take it as a compliment you're wonderful hopefully i don't (laughs) such a fan janine thank you so much for being here janine again an etiquette expert a great friend she always posts really helpful information and articles on her blog which is the pink teapot.blogspot.com i guarantee you should check it out today she has so many great helpful like i said etiquette tips and she's really good about putting it into a practical life situation good to have you good to see you thank you good to see you thank you janine this topic of fear continues we've we've explored it on many different levels today right now i want to pull in a friend of the show paul jenkins he's a positive psychologist joining us on the phone line paul are you there paul is actually in studio i was told you would be on the phone paul i'm so sorry as janine makes her way out we'll welcome paul on his way in forgive me for that faulty introduction you're dealing with a guest host so it's to be expected right i'm actually here in studio we're so glad i like to look eyeball to eyeball and see you in the in the face in the flesh how are you I'm doing well, thanks. I apologize for that, but glad to have you here. This is something that you're pretty pretty passionate about when it comes to overcoming fear and really understanding the psyche behind it. It is. It absolutely is. In fact, that's one of the most common things that normal people deal with. Can we use the word normal? Well, I hope so. Do we all fit into that category? I think so. Size me up. Am I normal? You know what? People get kind of upset about this sometimes because they think something's wrong with them because Mm -hmm. they're experiencing some fear or anxiety. Mm -hmm. It's really one of the most common things that people can experience. And there are some predictable principles that allow us to get on top of it. What are some of those principles you could share with the listeners today? You know what? The quick version, there's two parts to it. There's a physiological brain part. Mm-hmm. It's the way your your brain actually reacts to threat. The way we think, the way we tick, the way we respond. Well, the thinking part comes a little later. Okay. I'm talking about just the physiology. Okay. Because when we perceive a threat, we go into what's called the fight or flight response. We've heard a lot about that today. Yeah. That pure and simple is what fear and anxiety is all about. It's that physiological chemical response. And it's a natural thing that your body does to try to keep you safe. So you're normal. It's natural. Uh Just absorb it. Just feel it. What do we do beyond that? So the other part is the the mind part Mm -hmm. or the thinking part, the psychological part. So it's what you're doing with your mind that causes the other piece. And it's usually tied into a what if question. Okay. What if, what if. And just fill in the blank. Oh, I could fill in the blank yeah. 10 times over. That what if can oftentimes drive the fear and drive the sweaty palms and, and kind of accelerate Absolutely. the situation. Well, that's what triggers the threat that your brain responds to with the chemical fight or flight response. Mm. So they, they feed on each other. The simple solution to that is to answer those what if questions and to do it intentionally and consciously and truthfully. So you're kind of taking us to the worst case scenario then, a little bit. Yeah. Actually, well, because your, your mind is already doing that for you. Yeah. With, with the what ifs. Uh-huh. You know, what if this happens? And you usually dream up the scariest stuff you could. You know, what if I'm in a car accident? Right. Okay. And all I'm saying is answer that. If you're in a car accident, you're going to do a quick check to see if you're conscious or not. If you're not, then it's not your problem. You don't have to worry right. about Somebody it Somebody else that is going to take care of yeah. things. Right. That might sound a little morbid, but seriously, it's not your problem at that point. It's a very logical approach, though, but I think oftentimes logic, isn't that what calms our emotions? That's what's going to answer this what-if question yeah. so that it will remove the threat aspect and calm down the brain. 
Is this something that gets better over time? In other words, the more I practice this, oh, yeah. the more I'm able to respond more readily to it? Absolutely. Everything that we do repeatedly gets programmed into what we call neural pathways. Uh-huh. It's our brain's cruise control autopilot. And you can practice a new response to things that normally get you upset. And answering the what-ifs is one of those things. Unfortunately, one of the things we can do with fear is to face it. Now, everything inside of you is telling you, no. You're saying that with a big smile, and I'm thinking that was making my palms start to sweat, just thinking about coming head-to-head with that idea. Because that triggers anxiety itself. Mm -hmm. What we're finding, though, and the research bears this out, there's basically two responses you can have to fear. Either you can face it Mm -hmm. or you can avoid it. And everything inside of you is telling you to avoid it. Get away. That's the fight or flight response. So you're going against your nature a little bit to actually face it. But when you do, it actually reduces that fear overall because you find out. How many of us have had this experience where where we get through something difficult or something that we feared, we actually faced it, and mm-hmm. then we think, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought. That happens to me all of the time. You get mm-hmm. done with it and you think, what was I worried about? But yet I was so worried and it tied up my thoughts, emotions, oh, and yeah. conscience for a good 24 hours before. Absolutely. And it ties us up in knots and it has us believing that we can't handle it. So the what if question, subconsciously we always answer that question. What if this happens? Oh, I couldn't handle that. That would be terrible, horrible, awful, no good, very bad. And it's a lie. You can handle it. It's not necessarily going to be fun or easy. Mm-hmm. No, we're not talking about that, but yeah. you can handle it. Is there any benefit from um, stretching the threshold a little bit individually in our own lives? What I mean is is you might not be faced on a daily or weekly basis with opportunities to practice asking the what-if question or to practice mm. demonstrating the fight-or-flight technique you're talking mm-hmm. about. Can we push ourselves a little bit on a daily basis so that when the big things hit and the big things happen, we're a little more prepared or oh, a little yeah. more ready? Yeah. And notice that you're going to have a little bit of resistance to that. Because do you want to? Never. Not so Never. much. But getting clear about what the outcome would be. What's the, what's the payoff? What would be the result if I did that? Can I live a life without fear? And that can give you enough of a motivation to actually push yourself and get yourself to face some things. Interesting. Any little day-to-day exercises you can give us that might allow us the opportunity to do just that, to push ourselves a mm-hmm. little bit beyond our comfort zone. I'm putting you on the spot, I know. But to push ourselves a little bit beyond our comfort zone and ease into this idea of fear or change. I'm thinking yeah. of listeners on a daily basis that might not be out jumping off of bridges and skydiving and all of those extreme things. Yeah, and there, there's some things that are going to come up naturally. Right. Okay, so if you see a spider, for example... My wife will appreciate this example. <laughs> I told her years ago, hey, we can treat arachnophobia. She's like, I'm not interested. <laughs> no, sir. She is perfectly comfortable being terrified of spiders. I am too. I would get along with your wife quite well. But here's an example. You, you encounter a spider and you feel the little surge yeah. of anxiety. Yes, okay? Can yes. you imagine that? I'm like feeling it as You're you describe it. it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And even, even in this moment, you can picture that and you can say, okay, what if... That spider was on me. 
Okay, did your anxiety go up? Yeah, I got little chills on my arm. Have you ever had a spider on you before? Yes. What'd you do? I flicked it off. So you'd probably do that again? I would do that. What would I? I would flick it off again. Yes, you would. Could you handle that? I think I could. Yes, you could. How does that feel? Feels better. I know. It felt, look at you, magic man. <laughs> feels better. That's what they pay me the big bucks for, right? <laughs> really good insight. Thank you so much. I'm so glad I got to meet you today. Simple. Simple and easy aren't always the same thing. That's true. That should be a bumper it sticker. Simple. You should just caption that and put it as your own bumper sticker. I like that. There you go. Where can we get Great more idea. from you? Do you have a business or a website? You know, the website is the best place to get connected with what we're doing. We've got YouTube videos. We've got uh, podcasts and audio content. Everything to keep you pointed in that direction of positivity and taking control of your life. Living on Purpose, that's the name of my practice. So the website that. is drpauljenkins.com. Okay. Spelled with a D-R. drpauljenkins.com. Living it. with Purpose? Live on Purpose. Live on Purpose. I like that. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your insight today. So glad you were in You're studio. You're welcome. And not just over the phone. I snuck up behind you. I know. It was it was a moment. It wasn't scary, though. I've learned <laughs> to fight my fear. I did not flight. Hey, we're facing our we fears today on the Matt it. Townsend Show. Paul, I like you already. Thank you so much for Thank being here. Thank you, Brooke. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for listening. We're going to, going to be back in just a couple of minutes to wrap up this topic of fear. You're listening to BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. I'm Brooke Walker. It's been my privilege to sit in the last couple of hours as we talk about fear. Matt got a day off. It was all in all a great day. Paul's still here with us. And Jessica Black is joining us as well. You've got a little game for us, Jess. Sure, it's game time. I hope you guys are ready. We're going to play Would You Rather. Are you up for that? Mm. Okay. Yeah. So um, I started off really scary and then... um, then it just got funny. So, <laughs> so uh, You're hopefully I'll get you a little it. bit scared. Okay. Let you see what you would do in, you know, face of fear. Now, I feel like I'm, I'm at a disadvantage. Paul has all the skills. It's he true. He just taught me, and I'm trying to embody and, you know, envelop those skills <laughs> hey, to answer your question. You're already applying them, so you should be just okay. fine. All right. Oh, here we go. Okay, the first question. Would you rather have a zombie apocalypse or mm-hmm. World War Three? Oh, my gosh. I know. Paul, you first. Those are my choices. <laughs> a zombie apocalypse or World War Three? Let's I, bring on the zombie apocalypse. I zombie? agree with you. I saw... Right? Um, it's trendy. Is it Warm Bodies? Was that the movie? Yeah. yeah. I feel like after watching that movie, I am fully prepared to handle a zombie apocalypse. Or World War Z. There you go. See? Both. Uh, Hollywood has true. prepared us for the moment. Boom. Okay. I, I was thinking a zombie apocalypse would have a lot of... Scary people coming at you, World mm-hmm. War III. You, I don't know. I would go underground or something. So. Or instant <laughs> annihilation would... <laughs> or something. Exactly. All right. The next one. Would you rather have a terrifying nightmare every night or see scary things that aren't really there? These are hard questions. I know. This, they're scary. I'm Both questioning scary. my existence at this point. <laughs> Let's see. Say it again. A nightmare every night. Yeah, scary nightmares or just seeing things that aren't there. Scary things. Like the, the n- grudge coming I'd go with the, the nightmares, walls. I think, because you know you wake up and they're gone. 
That's true. Mm-hmm. That's really good reasoning. Because yeah. scary things in reasoning. real life would be like you can't escape it. And you don't know if they're, how do you know if they're real or not? And how people you know? would start making fun of you probably. Okay, you're just going for the teasing humiliation <laughs> factor. I get it. I get it. <laughs> Paul, you going to weigh in on that? Well, that's very good reasoning. I may have to be swayed by that. Yeah, I think I was too. I, <laughs> okay, let's go with the nightmares and we'll just deal with Did it. Did the therapist just follow my lead? Is that what just happened? <laughs> It was hard not to. <laughs> when you're good, you're good. So scary. compelling. Scary. Okay. Okay, this one's a little bit gross. Oh, good. <laughs> would you oh. rather lick a dead frog or eat a maggot? I would rather lick a dead frog, hands down. Lick a dead frog. Final answer. Yeah, because you I'm only have to I'm going for it. the maggot. Are you? <laughs> yeah, they're small. The you would swallow you know, a maggot. In one gulp, just get it over with? Protein. You don't have to chew. <laughs> I got a new blend tech. I, just, I did you know, too. Oh. <laughs> you wouldn't even notice it. Chop, chop Throw it, it in there. There you go. They have those smaller cups that you can blend in and you'd be good to go. Yep. A smoothie. smoothie. It probably tastes the same as like spinach or something. I don't oh know. boy. <laughs> oh boy. Broccoli. There you go. <laughs> okay. This one's weird. This is where it starts getting weird. I only had like three scary ones. It starts ones. getting weird now? <laughs> yeah, just now. No, the zombie no. apocalypse was just I was baby just cake. prepping you. Yeah, okay. Now you're warm. Um, <laughs> would you rather be half your height or double your weight? Half my height. Or really fat. I'm tall. I got inches half to spare. Half my height or mm-hmm. double my weight. You could double your weight in muscle mass. There you go. <laughs> That's not an option. It's fat. But nice try. You can't make it good. They both have to be kind of bad. You're tall, Paul. I am. How tall are you? 6'2". Okay. See, you've got inches oh, to spare. So I'd you be would join a one. Oh, that's really short. You couldn't drive. <laughs> but if you're really fat, you probably couldn't move very well. I know. I'm like getting through a doorway mm. would be a problem at that point. So It's true. That's a tough one. Where did you come up with these questions? Oh, the internet. Okay. It's full of crazy couple more people. for us. couple more. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, this one I is a little bit of math. So I hope you guys don't mind. Uh-huh. Would you rather live 1,000 years, uh, 1,000 year life or 10 100 year lives? That's kind of a thought-provoking one. So on the 10, 100-year lives, do we have to start over every yes. life? Yeah, you'd start as over a as a little baby and then yeah. live to be 100. I, See, I would rather do that one. To me. Yeah, I'd go with 1,000. I'm going with 1,000. Really? Okay, mm-hmm. I would disagree. Just because it would be like the same thing. Like, I don't know. Like Groundhog I guess day. I guess you would have to like, you could learn a lot more that way. You could well, be really smart. You know how they mm. say every decade improves upon itself like... Your 30s yeah. are better than your 20s, and your 40s are better than your 30s. I think by the time you hit 1,000, you'd be in pretty darn good shape. It's true. Hopefully, physically. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, next one. This one, I hope you guys know um, Star Wars. Um, never would you seen rather. It. You have it? Never. You've oh. never seen Star Wars. This one's a really. It's all you. These are, these are really. Did I just get kicked out? <laughs> Thank you. Am I just you are disqualified the from this club? round. I know. Okay, would you rather. Talk like Yoda or breathe like Darth Vader. You know those people, right? Those Yoda are like a pinchy tight ooh, little talk weird like Yoda. Guy. I would. <laughs> you're you're a therapist. I think it would help <laughs> your clients. You know what my nickname was in high school? What? I'm scared. Leading up to this, I don't know where you're going. <laughs> Yoda. It was Yoda. It was. This is obvious, you guys. Why? I'm all over this. Why? Was your nickname Yoda? Yeah, where did you I get was that? not six two in high school. Oh, I was short and had green hair, and they thought, you know, <laughs> did you really have green hair? 
as a freshman, the seniors named me Yoda, and it stuck. Oh, that is so funny. It stuck for all four years. Was it hurtful, or could you laugh at it? No, I kind of had fun with it. Okay. Because that's the way that these big people were accepting this scrawny little freshman. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's good. Sounds good with it. Make a good situation. He is a positive psychologist. Positivity. So there you go. Yeah, Yeah, it started early. We're going for another gross one. Would you rather never brush your teeth again or never brush your hair again? Hair. Hair. Oh, <laughs> high five. Jeez. I think that's true. People don't do that. I just I just saw on the news the other day a lady that hasn't washed her hair for, for five, five years. years. I know. Right. It made me itch the whole time I was watching. Yeah. It. I was just itching. She was owning it, though. I mean, yeah. I felt like her hair was just about as good as mine. <laughs> Giselle also went on record this morning as saying that she doesn't even own a hairbrush because people do that for her. Oh. Uh-huh. Wow. I mean, if you live that kind of a life, then it wouldn't even be a that's problem. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I, I'm going to get there someday. <laughs> okay. Would you... Rather, this is the last one. I'll try to make it a really good one. Would you rather spend four years in jail for something you didn't do or spend seven years in jail for something you did do? Seven years for something I did do. Oh, that's nice. Four years for something I didn't do. Ooh. Get the the time in and get out the door. Yeah, get her done. (laughs) You guys have been great. I think we all grew from that You stretched our minds and our imaginations. (laughs) Yes, it was enlightening. (laughs) Oh, boy, Jess. Thank you so much, Paul. Good to have you. Thank you. And thanks to the listeners at home. Thank you for welcoming me into your world for a couple of hours. I've enjoyed filling in for Matt Townsend on The Matt Townsend Show. Have a great day. This is BYU Radio.